Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Restitutio is a Latin word for restoration. I chose this word to describe my podcast because I believe Christianity has gotten off track from what it was in the early generations of the movement, at least. Thus, I'm a restorationist, someone who wants to dig through the layers of tradition which have settled like centuries of dust on the original truths of Scripture. I want to live out the faith authentically rather than have my culture shape the Christianity I practice. Now, I'm well aware that traditionalists often lampoon such efforts as naive or impossible. Yet, these same people often bow to the expertise of New Testament scholars whose historiography ultimately rests on precisely the notion of peeling back the layers of tradition to arrive at the Jesus of history as opposed to the Christ of faith. The difference between liberal New Testament scholarship and me is that I actually think God inspired the book so that I am not trying to get behind Scripture to find the truth, but look within it to discover it. In other words, I want to think about God how the first disciples thought about God. I want to understand salvation the way the Apostle Paul, for example, understood it. I want to practice Christianity the way those early generations did before the church got all muddled up with the government and Neoplatonism. However, life, of course, is not all about academia. We also need motivation when we feel complacent, conviction when we slip into sin, and encouragement when times are tough. As such, throughout my journey of faith, I've drawn strength by listening to some phenomenal revivalists and holiness preachers. Time and again, these people have stoked my waning fire until it was once again ablaze with fervor to glimpse God's glory and step ever closer to him. This podcast is both a place for me to share my own work, including sermons, class lectures, and theology presentations, as well as a way you can listen to some of the people whom you may not have heard of before. But trust me, you just have to listen to. To begin with, I'm going to follow in every other pattern of podcasting. I'll have something of my own and then something by someone else and keep alternating between them. Maybe this way, you won't get too tired of listening to me. Anyhow, first up is a sermon I preach called Keys to a Meaningful Life. What is the meaning of life? What is the reason to live? Why are you here? What are you living for? In what ways does your life make a difference? How do you lead a meaningful life? These are all really just variations of the same question. Listen to this message to discover not only what happiness experts say, like Martin Seligman, but more importantly, what Jesus' purpose statements were and how that can affect your purpose today. Enjoy. We think about the small things, right? Like, what am I going to eat for lunch? I think about that every day. (laughs) A lot. But these big questions, sometimes we we just ignore it or we put it off or we think we've got it figured out. And so I, I just I encourage you and I challenge you to think about this today a little bit. What is the meaning of life in general? Well, yes, but also in specific, your life. And uh, before we really delve into that and look at Jesus and 
what his purposes were, I want to share with you Rick Warren's Three Levels of Living. Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life that sold millions of copies a month and became the world's bestseller like overnight. And so I figured I'd check it out. Must know something, right? If uh, all these people bought his book. And so here, here are his three levels of living. The first is survival. The second is success. And then we have significance, right? So survival is you just got, you got enough to survive, enough to live. You, you have enough food. You have shelter. Very basic. Success is you're starting to get ahead a little bit. You're climbing the ladder. You know, you've got not just clothes, but you've got nice clothes. You've got not just, you know, one relationship, but maybe you have a few relationships. You, you don't just have a job, but you're starting to do well at your job. So that's success. And then the third one is significance. And you see this with like ultra-rich people sometimes, where at, at some point they turn and they start giving money to causes and to things because they want to have significant. They've, they've had all the success, and now it's like, well, we want significance. And so then they found these organizations, and they, and they give away, like Rick Warren founded three organizations when he uh, got all his money, and he started giving away that money. And uh, so significance, even if you're super successful, it's not enough, you still want significance, you want meaning. So I thought that was interesting, because this is from coming from a very Christian perspective, Rick Warren. And then we have the psychologist, Martin Seligman. And uh, our, our German friend here will tell us that Seligman is another way to say happy man in German. And it's so funny, because this guy's a psychologist who studies positive psychology, the psychology of happiness. And that's his field, and he did a TED Talk on it, if you're familiar with TED Talks. And he shared his three levels as well. He talks about the pleasant life, the good life, and the meaningful life. And so the pleasant life is like your five senses, right? The, the sort of things that bring you pleasure, immediate pleasure. I'm talking about having a good lunch. <laughs> Can we come back to lunch again? Um, Doing something that is, is enjoyable. You know, you ever go in one of these hot tubs at a hotel or a resort, and you just, when you first hit that water, it's like, ah, ah. And then that's the, that's the downside about the pleasure, right? After like 20 minutes, you're cooked. You know what I mean? And, and, and you, you don't even feel it anymore, right? And uh, so that's basic level one. It's, it's basic pleasures. Uh, I was thinking about Sarah Crowfoot's French toast. I think she made this one time for the RFR, uh, and, you know, this, this, is, this is typical of happiness level one, is that you have one piece of this butter-battered, brown sugar-coated, cinnamon swirl, and then you put syrup on it, and it's hot, and you eat it, and it's just, it's just delicious. It's just delicious. It's just out of this world, right? And then you have the second piece, Right? And it still just tastes so good, you know, and, and probably somewhere along the second piece, your stomach is, is, is probably destined to be full once it all settles, but you go for the third. You go for the third piece because it just tastes so good. Your mouth is watering and it's just popping and you're like, ah, and you just keep, keep going and keep going. And then you go for the fourth. And by the time you get to the fourth, the signal, however slow it may be, has finally been sent from your stomach to your brain that says... No more room. No more room. Stop eating. And of course, what do you do? You ignore that and you go for the fifth. And then, 
20 minutes later, what happens? Oh, oh, gosh. I should have only had four. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the downside of, of pleasure happiness. The upside is it's immediate gratification. It hits you. You experience it. You love it like that hot shower in the morning. But if you stay in it all day long, you know what happens to your skin? gets all wrinkly and pruned, and people start asking you questions about what kind of chronic disease you have, but you've just been in the water too long. And, uh, and so that's the downside of pleasure happiness. Then we have level two, which is the good life. It's engagement. It's work. It's relationships. It's the sorts of things that aren't based on your five senses that we fill our lives with and that give us this happiness. You know, being together as the family of God, um, doing work that, you know, feels good. You know, like Peter is out there landscaping, and, and, he's, and he's out in the sun, and he's sweating, and at the end of the day, he's hungry, and he, and he, and he feels like he got something done, you know, and uh, Mary Ann's over there counseling, and, you know, somebody comes in, and it's a difficult situation, and she's able to help him a little bit, and God's able to come into that situation. She feels good about herself, you know, you, when you get some work done. Even if you make your bed, you feel good about yourself, right? <laughs> Uh, there's this one happiness expert on, on the TED Talks who said that's the number one thing you can do to make yourself happy. It's the easiest thing you can do to make yourself happy every day. Just make your bed. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Like, here's this person with all these PhDs after their name. And they're like, make your bed. <laughs> but um, then we get to level three. And, and so in level two, you, you have this idea of, of work and engagement and parenting and leisure and doing things where you're so engrossed in it, maybe it's a good conversation, maybe you're watching a movie, I don't know, but you're, you're engaged in something, and the highest level of that is what they call flow, where you're in the zone such that time stops for you, and you're no longer aware of yourself, you're just so into whatever it is you're doing that you disappear. And then level three, but that's not level three. Level three, according to this non-Christian secular world-class expert on happiness, is the meaningful life. That's what he says. Knowing, and he says it, it all comes down to knowing your signature strengths and putting them into the service of something bigger than yourself. So you, 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 and he's got a whole website where he's got all these surveys and everything to figure out what your strengths are. You figure out what you're good at, and then you put what you're good at in service to something bigger than yourself that you believe in, that you think makes a difference in the world, and that is going to be level three happiness. Isn't that interesting? Both of these guys, whether the Christian or the non-Christian, put meaning at the pinnacle of happiness. We're not talking about the giggly, big smile happiness. We're talking about the deep joy happiness that, that endures. The kind of happiness that, that will pull you through that would make somebody even sacrifice, even give up things to get what they, they think is so meaningful. But, uh, so I want to look at Jesus and look at his purpose statements. But before I do that, I just want to run through four basic steps. Four basic steps because uh, unless we get these four things, we don't, Jesus is going to seem like a, an alien. He's going to seem like a stranger, like somebody from uh, some, somewhere far. Like I was thinking of those kung fu movies where they talk and then the words come in <laughs> later. He's going to seem like that. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? And so, we've got to get these four things down. The first thing is, there is a God and He cares about you. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, if, 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 there, if there is no God, then Jesus is like, what are you doing? Okay? But, it, but if there's a God and this God cares about you, then Jesus starts to make a little bit of sense. Right? 
And so I'm, I'm going away in a couple weeks to Atlanta Bible College to teach a class on apologetics, and I'm going to dizzy these poor students with all the reasons why we believe God exists. And there's the argument from the fine-tuning, knowing the physical constants of the universe and how these forces are so perfectly balanced to give us the kind of world we have. And I'm going to look at the causation, the argument from causation, like everything that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. And you trace things back, and what do you end up with? The universe having a beginning and needing a cause of its beginning. And that's the, the banger, right? God. God is the banger. So he bangs everything up, and then pff, it starts. He begins it. And then you have the argument for morality. How do, you, how do you ground your moral system of right and wrong without God? You know, based on a naturalistic origin, might makes right. Survival of the fittest, baby. You know, we should just do whatever optimally passes on our genetic code. You know, but nobody lives like that. And if they do, we put them in jail. As fast as possible, right? Because we recognize that, that is not a livable way of life, Right? Or we look at the argument based on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. We look at these arguments and there's just, it's, it's like embarrassing. How much evidence, how many reasons, and we look at our own testimonies, our own miracles that we've seen in our lives. All the reasons there are for God, to believe in God, it's just like shouting at you. I was thinking about, and it's not just like God as, as a principle, like a mathematical concept, but a God who created everything, a God who made everything. I was thinking about the fall. I was thinking about the fall, and, you know, I have no idea what it's like to be in the mind of God. <laughs> Probably a crazy place. But I was thinking about the fall, and, like, you notice God likes flowers. You guys, I'm sure you know that, because there's flowers everywhere, right? And flowers are these really cool things, and they, they bloom, and then they die, and then they bloom, and they die, and it's just incredible. They have all these exotic colors. And I was thinking about the fall, and it's like, it's like God didn't have enough flowers. So he's like, you know, we've got these things called trees with leaves. What if, like, one time a year we make them all into flowers for just a little bit? Like, this one will go yellow, that one will go red, this one will go orange. Just, be, you know, have a big hurrah, a big finale before the leaves fall off. Can you imagine how God just sort of figured everything? I mean, talk about genius, right? He invented fall. It's like, I got an idea. Call it fall. <laughs> this way, when the snow falls, all the trees' branches don't break, right? Which is brilliant. And then you have spring and everything else, and you have this, this incredible world that God created. So there is a God, and He cares about you. He cares about you. He's not a God far off. He knows you to your inmost core. He can spot your genetic code, right? He knows the difference between what you wanted to do and what you actually did. He knows how you think. He knows us inside and out. So that's number one. There is a God who cares about you. Number two is that he wants to be with you forever in the age to come. God really wants to be with you. He's not happy. And I, I think we all sense this to some degree, that there is something in us when, when somebody dies that we, that we say, that's not right. There's something wrong about this. Even though we all know that everybody dies. It's like... the Death and taxes, right? I mean, everybody knows that everybody dies. This is the most common thing in the world, isn't it? But yet when it hits us, we're just like, ah, oh, it doesn't make sense. And it's like, what? you know, it's, it's almost as if we were made to live forever. You know, that we were made with this sort of sense of 
It's not right that people die. People should not die. They should continue living. And I believe God put that in us. And he put it in us because he wants us to be with him forever. And he's, he's got this extravagant plan called the kingdom of God, or we call it the age to come, when everything wrong with the world is made right. I think I have to give Victor a quarter every time I say that. He'd be rich. When everything wrong with the world is made right. And so all the injustices will be corrected. Everything will be set right. And God gets to be with his people forever. I mean, that's it's so beautiful. I was thinking about the aspects of the kingdom. We were studying the book of Micah in, uh, in our home fellowship. And it talks about in the book of Micah how the outcast and the afflicted, the people in this world who have handicaps of different types, that those are the people that God is going to put on his mountain to be closest to him in the age to come. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that just reach your heart? You say, oh, that's, that would make sense. That would be a fitting place. And, you know, and in Isaiah it says that the lame will leap like the deer. Anybody ever see a deer leap out in the middle of the road and you're like, ah, right? They leap, right? Lame people, they, they, can't, they can't walk, they, they can't jump. They're going to be leaping like deer. Be like, somebody runs by, is that a deer? No, it was a lame person that, you know, got resurrected, you know. God's going to set it all right. He's got, a, he's got track of all the rights and all the wrongs, and he's going to set it all right. The injustices of this age where you have uh, things to make you afraid. The other thing it said in Micah 4 was that every, every, everyone will sit under their vine and their fig tree unafraid. I love that picture. I love that picture because it's, it's not this off, you know, floating on a cloud kind of nonsense. It's, it's, it's the real hope. I mean, in, in the real picture that we see in the Bible, we have people on a renewed earth and there are things like vines growing grapes and there are things like fig trees growing figs. And the problem with that now is that for however many figs you might produce from your tree, you've got to pay taxes on that, Right? And you've got to use it for this and that. And, and there are governments that attack each other and there are wars. And it says, in that day, they will sit under their vine and their fig tree unafraid. You know what I mean? And we are going to have some awesome fig newtons in the kingdom of God. And uh, all kinds of other food, too. It's not just vines and figs, if that's not your thing. But, um, and so that's, that's what God plans to do. And he, he does it for you. He does it for you. He, he creates this beautiful plan for the future so that he can be with you forever. I mean, he could lock you in a tractor beam where you're just like staring at him forever, but he chooses not to. He chooses to create a new world where everything is beautiful and that we can do things and have fun and explore and he's going to be here with us in an incredibly new way. And that's what he wants for you so you can be with him forever. So the next part is, the, I call it the get honest part, which is, you've done things to separate yourself from God. We've all done things to separate ourselves from God. God is holy, God is just, God is perfect. And so we've, we've done things. We've lied, we've cheated, we, maybe we've stolen, we've lashed out, we've hurt people, we've hurt ourselves. We haven't lived up to our own standards of right and wrong. And so, and, and you know, I don't know all of your dirt, thank God, and I'm glad you don't know all mine, but like, you've got stuff that you've done that you're not proud of, right? And these are the things that, that separate us from God and that need to be dealt with in order for us to participate in that beautiful age to come. And I know there's, there's a lot of people, you know, they hear about this, this idea of Jesus dying for their sins and they're like, well, 
you know, why should he die for my sins? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't want him to die for my sins. You know, I'll take mine. I'll take my own licks. You ever hear somebody say that to you? It's, it's, it's just like, it's just unbelievable. But I understand it. That makes sense to me. Because, like, you don't, you don't want some, something that you did wrong, somebody else to suffer for it. Right? But here's the thing. Jesus already did suffer for it. It's already happened. The plan has, has, has been fulfilled. Jesus died on that cross for our sins, for the things that we've done. So if, if you want to puff out your chest and point your finger at God and say, no, I'll take mine, right? I mean, just, just think about that image for a moment. Think about that image. Here you have a human. Now, God is very big. Humans, you know, we're, we're sort of like advanced animals, Right? <laughs> We're like Animal 2.0. And, and so God's looking down, and there's all these like, little humans, right? And there's one, up there, one down there, and he's like, I'll tell, I'm fine without you. I don't need you. I'll, I'll, take it, I'll do it my own way. And God's, and God's looking down there, and God's got like, this incredible laser vision where he can see right down to the genetic defect that's going to kill you in five years from an aneurysm. And he's like, you're pointing at me? Right? He can see right down to the bottom level of who you are. And he's like, this person is going to get Alzheimer's in, in 20 years and lose their mind. And they're, and they're pointing at me like they know more than I do about what's good for them. Look, he wrote the owner's manual. Right? He wrote the owner's manual. He knows how we work. He made us. And so it makes sense that he would know what's good for us. Right? And what's good for us is accepting this forgiveness that he offers freely so that we can be free, so that we can be free from our sins. And so he sent his Messiah so that we could be forgiven and live with him forever. And, you know, I, I love that word Messiah because it, it, grabs, it grabs the attention. Like the word Christ is like, you know, every, you know, everybody knows Christ. What does it mean? I don't know. But Messiah, it's like, ooh, it's got a little flavor to it. It's like, it's like that uh, fancy pepper instead of the regular stuff, right? And so Messiah is an anointed one, and God has anointed this man to rule that age to come, and this is the one who died for our sins. This is the one who came and who suffered. And you look at the suffering of Christ, it's just incredible, right? he's, He's tortured, he's beaten, he's bloody, he's hanging on the cross, and he's got love in his heart and forgiveness on his lips instead of, you know, threats and bitterness, Right? And he he shows us something about the love of God, doesn't he? Because God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. And that's that's the beautiful thing. And so I think once you understand these four things about that there is a God who cares about us, that he wants to be with you forever in the age to come, that we have done things that separated us, but God's fixed it through his Messiah who died on the cross and was risen from the dead. Once you understand that, then you look at the the purpose statements of Jesus, and, and they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So let's, let's take a look at some of these purpose statements. To preach the kingdom of God everywhere is the first one, and uh, we've got it up on the screen. This is Luke 4.43. Jesus had been in this town, and he was preaching, and he was wildly successful. Wildly successful. Everybody in the town responded, and he healed people, and he did all these incredible things, and... He went off to pray alone, and they came to find him, and they said to him, Don't go, Jesus, don't go. Stay with us. Stay with us. We, we really like having you around. 
We like it when you preach. We like it when you heal all our sick people. Right? And Jesus says to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Good save, Brad. I was sent for this purpose. This is a purpose statement of Jesus. This was his self-understanding of what he was up to in his ministry. As he was going from town to town, he wasn't ready to, to sit down, settle down, and all that. He, he had to go from town to town preaching this kingdom of God. Now, this kingdom of God is the, the age to come. The time when everything wrong with the world is made right. When Messiah reigns and righteousness rolls down like water. And so, Jesus is preaching this message. And he, he also came to seek and save the lost. This is from Luke 19.10, where Jesus says, But he said to them, oh, sorry, this is the other one. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you see that in his, in his ministry. Think about Jesus' ministry for a moment, those of you who are familiar with it. He would go and he would find people who were broken and lost. And he would find them and he would fix them and restore them and bring them healing and wholeness so that they could then live out a better life. Right? He, he took people and he fixed them and he sought them out and he, he found them. And a big part of how he did that was by preaching repentance. So the next one is to call sinners to repentance. And I, I, that's uh, Mark 2.17. I don't believe Jesus has all these different purposes that are like one's this way and one's the other way. These all work together. Preaching the kingdom of God, seeking and saving the lost, calling people to repentance are really just different ways of saying the same thing. He was in the business of reaching out to people that needed God and God's salvation and he brought it to them. And he brought it to them better than anyone else. So when we look at him, we see the clearest picture of what God wants for all of us. And this is in Mark 2.17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he would call these sinners. And he would go after them. And he would preach to them. And he would call them to repentance. And, and he looked at himself as a physician. As somebody who could bring healing. And in Matthew 20, 28, we have another purpose statement of Jesus, to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus believed in his own mission so much. Remember like the different levels of, of happiness? The highest level is the meaningful life, where you're willing to do whatever you can with your strengths for the greater cause, to contribute to something bigger than yourself. Jesus believed in it so much that what did he do? He gave his whole life. Right? We're talking about somebody who knew what was going to happen. You see him wrestling, agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating so bad that it's like drops of blood falling from his head. He's praying out to God, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to do that. But he believed in his own mission statement, his own purpose so much, it so consumed him that he's like, not my will, but your will be done. Right? And so he came and he gave his life as a ransom for many. It's also in 1 John. And then in John 10.10, 10, it says that he came to give life and life more abundantly, to have it more abundantly. And that's uh, tr certainly true. I was thinking about how, how this, this all works together and how the future needs to affect the present. And, I, and that's, that's how I kind of think about this whole subject. 
as I hope to make clear by the end here. The future affects the present. I think of my wife. We go to Florida every year for a vacation, go see her grandparents. And before we go to Florida, you know what my wife does? Anybody want to guess? Well, she packs, yeah, that's true. She gets a tan. Before we go, she gets a tan. Because the future affects her present. She's like, I'm going to be in Florida. I'm going to be on this beach. These people are all going to be tan. And I don't want to be the white girl. I want to have a little, I want to have a little base, right? Right? And then you go, and then you really deepen it. You really, you really get it going. So then when you come back, you got something to show people, right? And then, and then there's people like me that are blessed or cursed, however you look at it, with the Irish pale complexion. Amen. There is, I got an amen on the left side. Left side. I wear SPF 50. I wear the same stuff as the baby. And that's it. That's done. It looks down, and it's just like fresh meat. <laughs> we got one here. And it just, it just it devours me, man. It's, it's terrible. You know? And so, anyhow... The future needs to affect the present. And that's true, right? That's, isn't that true? Like, if you know something's coming up, like, let's say next year you knew you were going to get a million dollars somehow or other. I don't know how, but so, somehow you're about to get a million dollars next year. You think you live differently this year? You think you budget differently this year? You think you'd not worry as much about career plans this year as, you know, if you were sure of this? You know, and so... The future needs to affect the present. And I think that's what happened with Jesus. I think Jesus had such a clear picture in his mind of the age to come when lame people were walking, blind people were seeing, injustices were corrected, and those who were were cast off by society were, were brought in and forgiven and made whole, that it characterized his whole life. That all all the things he did were outworkings of this one great hope and faith that he had that God was going to bring the age to come, that God was going to bring the kingdom of God. And Jesus, Jesus was driven by that. He, he talked about it. That was the first verse we went to, Luke 4.43. I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also. For this purpose I was sent. And he would proclaim it and call people to repentance. And repentance isn't a bad thing. I know it has such a bad rap in our society. It's like, oh boy, you're going to call everybody sinners and call them to repentance. Well, look, if you're honest, you've done something that's wrong. You know what I mean? I mean, come on. You know, is, there, is there a perfect one in our midst that we can all learn from? You know? We've all made mistakes. You know what I mean? And so repentance isn't this like, heavy-handed bad thing. It's just you, you being honest with yourself before God and saying, you know what, I haven't even lived up to my own standards, much less yours. Please help me. Please forgive me. Please give me the cleansing because we can't clean ourselves. All right, so now let's, let's cruise on over to... Well, do you have John twenty twenty one, Brad, for us? You do. Look at that. I blinked. There it is. So Jesus said to them, again... So I've been focusing on Jesus and His purpose-driven ministry, right? This is what He says. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Whoa. So are you trying to tell me that Jesus' purpose is now my purpose? As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We are sent with the same purpose that Jesus had. We, in fact, the scripture calls us the body of what? 
the body of Christ, right? So we are Christ, right? We are His body, and we are the ones who are reaching out in this age until He comes back. Luke 24, I told you to turn there an hour ago, but uh, I finally caught up. Luke 24, verse 46. Thus it is written, this is uh, Jesus' parting words in the book of Luke. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. I was thinking about Isaiah 53. You ever read Isaiah 53, anybody? Some of you read Isaiah 53. It's the most beautiful prophecy of this suffering servant. I mean, it's tragic but beautiful at the same time. Who would suffer on behalf of the people. And that because of what he does in the work of suffering, they would be forgiven. And it's just so beautiful. And Jesus goes to these kinds of places. Uh, we don't know exactly where, but he just says, Thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Verse 47, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So this is his goal during his life, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, right? He was the one doing that proclaiming this repentance, calling people back to God, getting them ready for the kingdom. And then he's now leaving and he says to them, look, this is what your mission is. This is what your purpose is in the world. That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that, that's what these disciples did. That's exactly what they did. They started in Jerusalem. They were proclaiming this name. And they were proclaiming this forgiveness that's available. And then they went to the next town too. Which ended up being Samaria. And then beyond Samaria, they kept going. They went to Caesarea. And then beyond that, they kept moving. They kept moving until finally it got west. And it got south. And the, and the message went east all the way to India. You know, and it went south to Ethiopia right right in the first generation of Christianity, you know? And this thing just, just expands out and expands out because the first generation of Christ followers understood their purpose. They understood their purpose. They knew the purpose for their life, and they understood it. I want to share with you a story about a plague that happened. Some, I've shared this once before. But a plague that happened in the year 250, I want to share with you a story about a plague that happened in the year 250 to illustrate how, how incredibly beautiful Christians we can be if we understand our purpose. If, if we have our, the future pulling us towards it and influencing us now so that we do things that make sense. But before we look at that, I just want to mention a couple more. Brad, you got uh, Matthew 28 back there? This is our great commission. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not the great suggestion, ladies and gentlemen. This is the great commission. Right? And... If you're, if you're in a place where you haven't made a decision to follow Christ, this does not apply to you, okay? You are off the hook. This does not apply to you. Because only once you've experienced the forgiveness, only once you've 
been lost, like we sing in the Amazing Grace song, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found, right? Once was blind, but now I see. Yeah, if you can really sing that song from the depths of your soul, and you know what it's talking about, then this applies to you. If not, then there's other work, you know, I mean, you've got to look into it, check out reasonablefaith.org, do the research, figure out if this whole Jesus thing is, is, is uh, legit and all that. But if, if you are already at that place and you have made this decision, then this is your great commission, right? And the thing is, we've got to figure out our own role in contributing to this. Everyone's different. We all have different strengths. We all have different skills. We can't all sing like Brother Moses. You know what I'm saying? We can't all do the different things that everybody else can do. But you have strengths, and, and what, what this is, is telling us is that our, our mission is to go out and to make disciples, right? To bring people this message of forgiveness and love, and that you've got to figure out what you're good at doing and put it to use for that, because that is the meaningful life. That is the meaningful life. It doesn't matter what kind of job you do. It doesn't matter how much money you have or you don't have. What matters is that you understand your purpose and that you're able to plug into that cause that's bigger than yourself because it's going to make the world a better place. The kingdom is going to make the world a better place. And in the present, we're, we're living this out. We're embodying it. We're illustrating it, just like Jesus did, just like these disciples did. I'm all excited. Let's go to this plague. Let me talk about this plague. It was a pandemic. It broke out in the Roman Empire in the year 250. The symptoms included vomiting, diarrhea, burning eyes, loss of hearing, loss of sight, and death. It was a very deadly plague that hit. And... It was so bad that it infected thousands, maybe millions. You know, it's hard to exactly count things from the year 250. You know, we get reports from certain cities of of people who saw things. And in the city, thousands were dying on a daily basis. You know, wake up the next day, a thousand more people have died. The next day, a thousand more people have died. It was... There was the stench of death wafting through the air. The cities were littered with corpses. You couldn't bury all the people because they kept dying. And so there's just dead bodies everywhere. And the plague would jump from house to house. People's solution was, I'll just stay inside. I'll hide out inside until this thing is, is, is gone. But it, somehow or other, it would still get from house to house. The typical response when this happened, I mean, we're talking about a, a pre-technology society here where we don't have access to the kind of medical interventions that we have today. The typical response was, what do you think? Run. Fear, right? Fear, panic, right? Terror is, is gripping people. One pastor wrote from the, an eyewitness of this, they pushed away those with the first signs of the disease and fled from their dearest. So that's like somebody starts coughing and you're like, get out of here! And you kick them out of the house because it's serious and if they have it, you're going to get it, and then everybody's going to die. So they, they would kick their dearest loved ones out of the house. Mothers to children, you know, brothers to sisters, you know, just kick them out of the house. They even threw them half dead into the roads and treated unburied corpses like refuse in hopes of avoiding the plague of death, which for all their efforts was difficult to escape. 
But just imagine a world where the plague is infecting house after house, place after place, and everyone in the city is paralyzed by it. And, and think about your chances. Let's say you were one of the ones that got the plague. Okay? I know this is really sad, but it's just a hypothetical. Okay? So just don't stress out. Uh, so you get the plague. You start coughing. You're trying to hide it. You're trying to hide it because if everybody in your house finds out you got the plague, they're going to throw you out on the street. And then they see you, like, vomiting in the other room or something, and they're like, Pito, you got the plague? You got it? Get out of here! And they kick you out, and now you're out on the street vomiting and have diarrhea and everything else, and you've got no access to sanitation, no access to food, no access to any kind of medicine. What are your chances of survival now? Out on the street. Way down. It's almost like certain you're going to die now. Whereas before, maybe if they took care of you, maybe a few would survive. But now, once you're out on the street, it's like a death sentence. All right, that was a typical response in the city. Uh, I think the city was Carthage in North Africa during the Roman Empire, but it was an empire-wide pandemic. The Christian response was they cared for their own. Okay, and this is, this is history. So whether you agree with it or disagree with it, this is just what happened. They cared for their own. So if a fellow Christian got sick, they would care for that person. They would take care of that person, providing food and sanitation and companionship right to the end. If you're dying, you know what you really want? Somebody to sit there with you. You know what I mean? You don't want to be all alone. You want companionship. The same pastor wrote the following. They, the Christians, would also take up the bodies of the saints, close their eyes, shut their mouths, and carry them on their shoulders. They would embrace them, wash and dress them in burial clothes, and soon receive the same treatment themselves. Isn't that incredible? And so Christians had honorable burials, and they would care for each other, and they knew it was likely to kill them, and they still did it anyhow. So that's, that's somebody that has come to terms with the fear of death, right? This is somebody who believes in resurrection. This is somebody who knows that the forerunner, the captain of our salvation, was raised from the dead and therefore has broken the power of death and that we have resurrection to look forward to on the last day. Only with that kind of a belief are you going to do this sort of thing because it gets bigger than that. And they didn't stop there because they, they cared for strangers too. They cared for strangers. And in the year 250, if you were a Christian... You were persecuted. It wasn't a systemized, government-wide persecution, but it would flare up from city to city here and there because Christianity was an, an unapproved religion. And, and they, they felt it was subversive because they would not give Caesar proper honor by offering a little pinch of incense to him as a sacrifice. And so because of that, Christianity was persecuted. And non-Christians typically hated Christians because they did not worship the gods. And, and they, since they didn't worship the gods, they thought they were putting the city in danger. Okay? And so these people generally hated the Christians, and yet when the plague came, what did our people do? Cared for them. In the full knowledge that the chances of dying were extremely high. It's just incredible. At great personal risk, they took infected pagans. And Christians died in great numbers, but at the same time, it overlapped with the same time where it was the greatest growth in the church. Is that interesting? Because like you're doing something that's basically church or you know suicide, right? 
This is the body of Christ committing suicide, right? Francesca gets sick, right? Now, I, I go to take care of her. Now, I get sick. So then Jim Allen's going to take care of me. Now, he gets So how are we going to grow if we keep dying, right? That's a good question. That's a good question. Christians died in great numbers, but they looked at it as an honor to die like Christ. They didn't think, oh, I can't believe this, or I regret, I have so many regrets. No, they're like, this is the highest honor, to die like our leader who died for the sake of others to give them life. Again, you know, whether you disagree with it is, is beside the point. This is just what happened. This is what they believed about the situation. But if you just imagine for a moment what it would be like to be one of these non-Christians that gets thrown out of your house, right? And you're in the streets, and you're full of vomit and diarrhea, and you stink, and you know you're going to die, and you're groaning, and there's despair and a loss of hope in your eyes as you just sit out there hour after hour, knowing full well that nobody is going to take you in, and there are dead bodies around you. Imagine that. And then somebody comes up, and as, as the, the fuzzy figure gets closer, you focus your eyes, and it's one of those damn Christians that you've made fun of, that you've ridiculed, that maybe you, maybe you, maybe you raise your hand in the theater when they were killing them with the lions, right? And you can't defend yourself. Here they come. You can barely walk. You can't get up. You can't do anything. You're, you're, you're pathetic. And, they, and they, they, they lean down and they say to you, I'll be right back. I'm going for help. And you're like, what? <laughs> going for help? I, you know, we hate you. Why, are you. why are you helping me? And they come back and there's a little group of Christians and they've got a little wooden cart and they put you on it and they wheel you up to this little cheap upper room apartment where there are all these other sick people on beds. And they, they wash you, they clothe you, they give you fresh water and food and a blanket to sleep in, right? And you pass out and you sleep for a long time. And when you wake up, the Christian who found you is sick next to you now in the bed over. And as time goes on, that person dies. That person dies. But you start to feel a little better. And then a little better, and a little better. And within a, within a, a number of weeks, you recover. I'd like to see somebody talking you out of the faith at that point. I'd like to see somebody convince you to not become a Christian at that point. Because you were just shown a kind of love that does not exist in this world. A kind of self-sacrificial, cross-shaped, outrageous love that Jesus taught us about when He died on the cross and that now by the power of the Spirit we can, we can show to other people. This is what happened. This is, this is what the people did. There's nobody that would be able to talk you out of being... This is, I, I, I like to say it like this. This kind of self-sacrificial, radical love is in the DNA of the body of Christ. It's in the DNA of the body of Christ. So if you're in the body of Christ, this is part of who you are, right? And this is the sort of beautiful that we need to be in the world. And, and it fits with our purpose of, of embodying the kingdom, illustrating the kingdom, living the future now, bringing hope. 
And this brings glory to God, right? It's all to the glory of God. And it brings joy to God when we live out this purpose. So I really want to encourage you to come back and challenge you to come back to part two of our series. We're going to look more about the the daily grind, the ins and outs of of how to live a successful life. But I, I, I submit to you for today, think about that question again. You know, we have some time later today. What is your purpose? What is your meaning? How can you use your life and your talents to plug into this big overarching thing that God's going to do in the world and that he's already doing in the world right now? So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful example of your son. We thank you for the fathers and mothers who have come before us in the faith who have who have lived this out, we ask that you would help us to plug into your purpose, that we would get on board with what you're doing in the world today in light of what you're going to do in the world in the age to come. We ask for your grace. And Father, if there are some in here that have never made that decision yet, I pray for them as well, Father, that you would give them whatever they need, whether it's encouragement or conviction, to know that you are a God who cares about them, who wants to spend forever with them, and who has provided for all of their shortcomings through the death of your Son and his resurrection from the dead. We ask now that you would quicken our our souls and our spirits, that we would be able to accept this forgiveness and live for you a life of purpose. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.